0: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with James Strick to talk about his new book, Wilhelm Reich, Biologist. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press. Now, the book opens with the public burning of the books and instruments of Wilhelm Reich by the U.S. government. The intro describes this as one of the most heinous acts of censorship in U.S. history. Now, what follows is an account of a fascinating scientist and individual that takes us into sexual revolutions, orgasms, cancer, uh, lighting a bomb under the ass of science. Uh, that's a quotation from one of the private notebooks of the scientists that you'll hear us talking about um, in the moments to come. There's all kinds of amazing narrative elements to the story that Jim is giving us um, that makes the book accessible and readable and frankly, exciting. Whether you know something about science and the history of science, or whether you don't, you just really like a good book and a good story. But if we probe deeper into the history of this particular figure and the work that he was doing, what we see is that he was widely derided, um, in part thanks to the judgment of him by the FDA um, when he came to the U.S., he was widely derided as a charlatan and a pseudoscientist. But he was doing some really fascinating laboratory work. And what this book does is it takes that work seriously. It asks us, what if we put on hold or think beyond these labels of pseudoscientist and charlatan and really look at what he was doing in his laboratory experimentation with the aid, not just of his published work, um, but also of his correspondence with some other figures and of his private notebooks, which uh, the archive of which just became available In November 2007, what if we take his science seriously? What if we take him as a biologist seriously? What can that help us do? And what the book is showing is that what that can help us do is see links that otherwise might remain hidden between some really uh, exciting debates in the sciences today. Arguments and research over the possibility of life on Mars, right? What does a signature of biological life look like, for example, in Martian meteorites or, or elsewhere? How do we identify that? What is life? But also, connections that have recently been put forth between like AIDS and syphilis, between cancer and viruses. There are all kinds of debates in ways that, in other words, current research and current experimentation in lots of different areas of the sciences links up in really interesting ways with the kinds of things that Reich was doing in his laboratory. So there are all kinds of implications for today, perhaps, and for the future that come from understanding and taking seriously what was actually happening in his laboratory and his his laboratory notebooks. It's a fascinating story. It was great fun to talk with Jim about it. And I hope that you have a chance to get your hands on the book because there's so much that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's just such a rich, um, very substantial, very substantive book. And we really just kind of dipped in and out today. But um, we did dip in and out of some pretty interesting moments. So I hope you enjoy. Um, I hope you take away um, uh, from this, again, the opportunity to, to see the book. And thank you, as ever, for your support of the channel and for listening. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with James Strick about his new book, Wilhelm Reich, Biologist. Welcome to New Books in STS, Jim, and thanks very, very much for being with me today, for making time and for creating such an engaging book for us to talk about. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So, Jim, let's start big. What brought you to work on the history of science? How did you come to the field?
1: I was uh, originally a biology major as an undergrad, and I... I think it was in my senior year as an undergrad that I came across a book called The Spontaneous Generation Controversy from Descartes to Aparin on the shelf of the university library. And I was really interested in microbiology and spontaneous generation experiments had a long place in the history of microbiology. So I started reading this book and I just sort of was astonished that you could make a living doing something like this, the history of science. and um, I've continued, actually, to be astonished by that the more I've gotten into it. But it made me aware that there was such a field. And I went on to a master's degree in microbiology, and then I taught high school biology and chemistry for about 10 years. And it was when I was a high school teacher that I found using uh, stories from the history of science, not the kind that you find in in high school textbooks that are usually um, not very well researched, but from the history of science literature, stories about what professional historians had found out about what actually happened during some controversies. I used those as readings, for example, with 10th grade biology students, having them read, you know, the history of spontaneous generation controversies. And I found that it was really a very powerful tool pedagogically, especially for science phobic students. It was really a way in to the science and they didn't notice it along the way. But in order to understand the historical research, they had to understand all the science that was involved and not just the science but also the history as well. So without noticing it, they were learning the science that they thought was so impossible for them to learn. And it really helped them overcome that barrier and find their way into becoming excited about the sciences. And eventually I I got so excited about history of science as a tool for science pedagogy that I decided I really needed to get formal training in it, a really thorough background in it more than what I could just get reading it on my own in my spare time. So I applied to a PhD program in the history of science um, at Princeton and got accepted. Uh, The reason I applied there was because the author of one of the articles that I liked the most about the history of spontaneous generation controversy, uh, Jerry Giesen, was working there, and Mm -hmm. I thought he would be a great person to work under, and um, he turned out to be indeed a really great person to work under, uh, on my dissertation. And, um, then of course you finish a PhD and they say, well, why don't you try college teaching? And, uh, I like that every bit as much as I did high school teaching and you get time and support to do research as well. And, you know, your own writing. So, um, that's sort of the short answer to how I became a professional historian of science, but I still, I teach in a science department at Franklin and Marshall College, and probably half or more of the students in my classes end up being science students Mm -hmm. who, like me, didn't know there was such a thing as history of science until they heard about this course that they landed in. And uh, so I'm still basically using it as much as a tool for science pedagogy as I am for teaching history or history of science in its own right.
0: Now, why did you come to this particular figure Um, In the context of your broader research trajectory, what brought you to Reich uh, specifically and how did you decide to write a book length and and a pretty um, substantial book length study about him?
1: Well, I had heard of Reich way back when I was an undergraduate. I think in the 1970s when I was an undergraduate, a lot of people were reading Reich. It was a, a, a real fad back then. Um, but I had heard at that time that this was a scientist who eventually got into some kind of a confrontation with the U.S. government, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, and that part of what happened was that not only did he end up be getting imprisoned for contempt of court in challenging the Food and Drug Administration, but they got a federal ge- judge to issue an order to actually seize and burn his scientific books and journals – and even as an undergraduate, that really caught my attention and made me curious. Um, so, but I didn't you know, really have the opportunity to find out that much more about it. And later, as a historian of science, um, I work on, because of my training in microbiology, the things that I got most interested in working on are the history of experiments and ideas about the origin of life. And lo and behold, at one point, somebody who read my first book, uh, another historian, told me, you might get interested in this story that happened in Norway back in the 1930s, where this guy who was originally a psychoanalyst ended up in Origin of Life experiments. And I thought, wow, that sounds pretty interesting. That's a pretty offbeat story. And uh, when I started to look into it, it was Reich, Wilhelm Reich, this guy who I remembered being puzzled as an undergraduate about how how did he end up getting his books burned by the U.S. government? And so the combination of those things made me say, I really want to find out more about this story. Um, And, you know, maybe it's an interesting enough chapter in the history of origin of life experiments that it will hold up on its own as a a history of biology uh, text, as well as. Something for a more general audience. I mean, I I thought right away, um, what are the angles that make a story interesting to a wide range of people? And I can't be the only person who, when they hear about the story, says to themselves, how is it that a psychoanalyst ended up finding his way into a physiology laboratory? And how is it that even from there, he ended up finding his way into the middle of origin of life experiments? That's not an obvious career path. So how did that happen? Um, Reich was also a Marxist, and um, at least early in his career. And he, like a fair number of people in the life sciences in the 1930s, thought that the uh, Marxist philosophy of science, dialectical materialism, might be really useful as a tool to access some of the problems in the life sciences that that had been conundrums, Uh, you know, what's the nature of life itself? How is living matter different from non-living matter? So it also seemed to me like a really interesting case study. Historians of biology have talked a fair amount about uh, J.B.S. Haldane, the British geneticist, uh, uh, J.D. Bernal, the British crystallographer, Alexander Oparin, the Soviet biochemist. And others who used dialectical materialism in their approach to problems in the life sciences, especially to the origin of life problem. So I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to see what take on dialectical materialism and its application to biology somebody has who's coming from a very different background from psychoanalysis. And um, I think that has indeed also been one of the more interesting parts of the story.
0: That's right. So today, uh, Reich is most well-known for a bunch of things that don't seem to have a whole lot to do immediately with laboratory science, right? He created a synthesis between psychoanalysis and Marxist dialectical materialism, as you just uh, mentioned. He was a political critic who analyzed Nazi manipulation techniques. He was known in self-help circles as, quote, the father of body therapies. He campaigned to liberalize divorce laws, laws against abortion, laws against homosexuality. He helped create a sex political movement in Weimar, Germany. And he was widely regarded as someone who, as you put it in the introduction, acted as a midwife to the sexual revolution in the 1960s. He died in prison in 1957. This is not an uninteresting person. This is a fascinating figure, right? We've got book burning. We've got orgasms we'll talk about. We've got cancer. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. Okay, he was also and this is really where the book um, for me was at the heart of the book um, or one of the things that's at the heart of the book. He was also a laboratory scientist and that hasn't really gotten as much attention. Why has that been um, so ignored by scholars?
1: Well, um, I think and I guess this is another part of what made me interested in the story as a historian of science. Um, When Reich went into the laboratory, Um, most of his psychoanalytic colleagues couldn't understand what he was doing. Um, They either hadn't paid enough attention to laboratory science after they had been trained as psychoanalysts, or they might have been people who didn't have an MD in the first place and were practicing psychoanalysis from the direction of philosophy or something like that. And uh, Many of his psychoanalytic colleagues thought, this guy has gone off the rails. How does he think he could possibly do something legitimate in a physiology laboratory when his training is psychoanalysis. I mean, he does have an MD, but... And that kind of, that opinion about Reich's laboratory work as, at best, sort of misguided and not likely to be worth very much, at worst, outright pseudoscience, that opinion has become very widespread, especially since, in Reich's confrontation with the US government, The Food and Drug Administration all but declared Reich's discoveries to be pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he died in prison. And most people who hear initially about the story, that's enough to convince them there must not really have been much to the science worth paying attention to. Otherwise, you know, how could he have ended up dying in prison and labeled as a pseudoscientist? In many. Uh, places where pseudoscience is discussed as a phenomenon. Um, Reich and his later discovery of what he called orgone energy are often used as a a textbook case of pseudoscience. And uh, when I first started digging into these bion experiments in Norway in the 1930s, one of the things that I found out pretty quickly was Reich had left a pretty substantial archive when he died and it was pretty well preserved. And um, like many psychoan- psychoanalysts, he had left a provision in his will that said the archive shouldn't be open to scholars until 50 years after his death. Um, enough time for all the patients you know, who were personally involved in the story to have passed on. And um, as it turned out, that meant that Reich's archive was going to be opening in November 2007 just a few years after I first started to get interested in the story. So it occurred to me that if laboratory notebooks were preserved there from the experiments that I was looking at, this could be a really interesting way to examine whether or not a a supposedly textbook case of pseudoscience was, in fact, pseudoscience. If one could... Uh, if the laboratory notebooks had been preserved, you could look at what Reich was doing in the laboratory day by day and see whether or not it, things that you know, are actually reported in there as having been measured, seen, discovered, correspond with what he later published and what was widely regarded as pseudoscience. And um, that made it interesting to me in a whole new light. You know, it, it could be a use of laboratory notebooks to test whether or not a supposed textbook case of pseudoscience was. And to me, that's one of the most exciting things about the book is that what I concluded is that whatever else this work is, it's not pseudoscience. Um, rye did see, it's clear he saw the things that he reported seeing. It's clear that he had microscopic equipment capable of seeing things that a lot of other researchers couldn't see because he had better microscopes than most of the other people working um, at the time. And one could argue today as a scientist whether or not the interpretation that Reich puts on this is the same as what Reich thought it meant. But uh, I think that one of the things the book can help do is change the conversation. We, we, we can stop talking about whether or not this is pseudoscience. I think it's pretty clearly shown that it's not. And now we can start asking, well, then what does it mean? Which might be a much more interesting and a more fruitful question. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's also the case that these experiments in microbiology are the very experiments where Reich discovered the thing he called orgone energy, Toward the very end of these experiments, it's one of the last thing that comes out of them. So, and uh, his orgone energy discovery is the source of his conflict with the Food and Drug Administration later on. So if one wants to have any kind of an intelligent opinion about Reich's later work, and, you know, especially the work that got him into conflict with the U.S. government and got him into prison and got his books burned, well, this story is pretty foundational to that because... If you're trying to make up your mind about whether there's anything meaningful to Reich's discovery of orgone energy, these are the very experiments where that discovery originated. And you might certainly want to take a close look at them if you're trying to think of whether orgone energy could have anything about it that's valid.
0: Now, to get to orgone energy eventually, we first have to start with orgasms. Another or, right? But a very different kind of a word
1: not coincidental either.
0: Right. So the beginning of the book actually contextualizes um, what he was doing uh, before his work with Orgone Energy and before his work with the Bion experiments um, that you were talking about just before that we'll get to in a moment um, and takes us into his early life. Now, his early life is amazing in all kinds of ways. I mean, the first paragraph of chapter one is just packed with these moments, like his mother committed suicide after an affair with one of his tutors was discovered. I mean, there's just lots and lots of stuff happening in his early life. And I just want to mention that to mark that part of the book for listeners who are particularly interested in his early biography. We won't talk about that too much, but um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Now you also contextualize his early life and training um, kind of within the larger context of the early decades of the 20th century, his relationship with Freud, uh, the mechanism vitalism debate, his engagement with dialectical materialism, as you've mentioned briefly before. In this context, he begins to work on the orgasm and the notion of orgiastic potency. He has um or he develops an idea of the orgasm as an electrophysiological discharge. So because this is the beginning of the story, and we need to to talk about this, right, Mm -hmm. can you um, briefly um, kind of explain for listeners what do we need to understand about his work on orgasm, um, kind of what brought him to it, um, and what led him from that in order to understand how this forms a basis for his later work on bions?
1: Yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, that is the question that eventually leads him into a physiology laboratory. So it is pretty important if you're trying to figure out how does a psychoanalyst get into a physiology laboratory. Um, Reich was uh, one of the uh, younger generation of Freud's trainees. who first met Freud in 1920, but somebody who was recognized as a really brilliant clinician and especially brilliant at training younger um, psychoanalysts. But he was bothered by the fact that many of the psychoanalysts uh, seemed content with, um, being able to write up a description of a therapy with a patient that you know fit psychoanalytic theories but didn't necessarily end up helping the patient uh, in the end. And that bothered him. So he was a, a pioneer in therapeutic technique and in trying to find um, ways to deal with patients that were dead ends for many of his psychoanalytic colleagues Um, He wrote a book in 1925 called The Impulsive Character that um, was considered technically quite brilliant in dealing with what today are called borderline personality types. Um, But at that time, the terminology was impulsive characters. And Reich uh, felt over time that what he was seeing in his patients uh, is that those who were actually helped by the therapy were those who were able to resolve their sexual conflicts, especially their unconscious conflicts from their upbringing, and establish a normal, healthy sex life with regular sexual discharge. And he saw that in the patients in whom that happened, the intensity and the frequency of their neurotic symptoms diminished really markedly. And in the patients in whom that didn't happen, the neurotic symptoms really were very tenacious and and remained pretty much beyond the reach of the therapy. So he began to wonder, you know, what is it about orgasm? What is it about the patients who are actually getting gratified regularly in their sex lives that's taking energy away from the neurotic symptoms? I mean, you have to remember Freud and other people working in psychology in the late 19th century really deeply immersed in the idea of conservation of energy and the idea that if there was energy to fuel neurotic symptoms, it had to be coming from somewhere else. So uh, it's something that Freud wrote about in his earlier writings, and he coined the idea of libido as a, a real physical something that was involved in conservation of energy. Somehow libido could be expressed either in healthy sexuality, in Freud's theory, or if it was not, and it was dammed up, like a stream that was dammed up, it would overflow the banks and run off in other channels, which Freud thought of as analogous to neurotic symptoms. And uh, Wright, uh, like a number of other young psychoanalysts of his generation, felt that if one could prove in a physiology laboratory that libido was real, a real tangible something that could be measured and quantified, that it would put psychoanalysis on a firm scientific footing, and that if nobody ever bothered to try to go into a physiology laboratory and demonstrate that libido was real, a tangible physical something that could be measured quantitatively, then the rest of science was probably always going to consider psychoanalysis just armchair speculating, not a real science. So eventually he began to read pretty widely in the physiological literature, trying to wrap his head around how would you design an experiment like this if you could ever get access to a physiology laboratory, <laughs> the equipment and the time, etc. And um, Uh, Sooner or later, um, you could see him working in his theoretical writings toward an understanding of, well, how would we try to uh, understand what libido is physically? And Freud had kind of two main hypotheses about libido. One, that it might be some kind of a chemical substance, maybe similar to the sex hormones that researchers were really first characterizing in detail in the 1920s, Um, and maybe it built up in a concentrated way in the genitals during sexual excitation and dissipated or somehow was chemically transformed into something else um, when gratification happened. Um, Or maybe um, in other passages, Freud describes libido as Uh, analogous to um, uh, an electrical charge spread out over the surface of the body. Um, So he thought in some places that it might be an electric phenomenon, bioelectricity uh, in some manifestation. (laughs) And Reich reads the literature pretty widely in these two different areas of research, trying to figure out which would plausibly make the most sense to try uh, experimenting on first. And he concludes for a number of reasons that bioelectricity seems like a a more promising possibility and that that is the kind of experiment he'll try to design first. And uh, from the literature on what's available about bioelectricity in different emotional states, he concludes that measuring the, the voltage at the surface of the skin in different emotional states, including sexual arousal, would be a good way to demonstrate whether or not there is some tangible physical kind of energy that's actually changing in quantity during different emotional states. And unlike other researchers before him who were interested in changes in electrical potential at the skin surface, Reich was especially interested in the skin surface of you know the hands, the arms, uh, the body generally, Compared to the skin surface of the erogenous zones, in particular, because he thought if uh, if libido was indeed some kind of bioelectrical phenomenon, that's where you would see um, much larger swings in the uh, charge at the surface than you would perhaps see on other um, ordinary areas of the body. Um, he was offered a laboratory at the University of Oslo, the capital of Norway, um, by a psychology professor there, uh, Harald Sheldrup, uh, in 1934. And Reich, having, been, having had to flee Germany when the Nazis took power in 1933, was looking for a possible permanent home for his work, but was really looking especially for a place where he might be able to uh, find access to laboratory facilities to carry out these experiments that he had been envisioning. So this seemed like a golden opportunity to him. And he, in the fall of 1934, moved to Oslo and began to uh, work on designing the equipment that would be needed for these kind of experiments. Um, They were conducted at the university over 1935 and early 1936. And um, most of what Reich expected was uh, validated by the experiments, (laughs) <laughs> that That is that um, in states of sexual arousal, there was a tremendous increase in the voltage at the skin surface of the erogenous zones, um, far more so than at the skin surface of any other part of the body, which remained more or less constant during different emotional states. Um, but then uh, in sexual gratification, there was a equally great discharge in the amount of uh, bioelectric potential at the surface of the skin. And uh, it led Reich to believe that um, psychoanalysis really did have a future in laboratory science Mm -hmm. and that most of Freud's libido theory could be validated in a physiology laboratory.
0: And Chapter 2 takes us into kind of the details of what uh, he calls bions and bion experiments. Now, he thought um, he's making films. There's a bion cookbook that's full of recipes. Here, he thought he was creating structures that were some kind of transitional stage between the living and the non-living, and this notion of bions becomes really important. Now, in his private diary from December 1936, he talks about these experiments in very evocative terms, uh, and you quote this in chapter two. He says, "Life must have a father and mother. Science, I'm going to plant a bomb under its ass." Right, science, I'm going to plant a bomb under its ass. Okay, so this is one of, I imagine, um, uh, the more evocative moments from his private notebooks. And you talk early in the book about your own um, work with Jerry Giesen, who, you, who you've mentioned, who I worked with actually also when I was at Princeton, um, who had been working on his own book on Pasteur's lab notebooks, which, and, you know, Giesen's book was very much about private science and public science, what was happening in the private notebooks. Um, versus what was happening in the published science, and there's a a distinction there in the case of Pasteur. You tell us um, early on in the book that in this case, there's not so much of a distinction in the science between what he was recording privately in his lab notebooks and what was published. But at the same time, there are um, ostensibly more moments um, like this that are kind of exciting and evocative for you as a researcher as you worked through these notebooks. So in addition to lighting a fire, under the ass of science um, in the context of these bion experiments. (laughs) Are there any other moments that you immediately recall from these notebooks that you were particularly struck by and that you found particularly inspiring in the course of this research?
1: It is really exciting when you're doing archival research to find passages like that. Obviously that's not a quote that would ever <laughs> find its way into a published work. But that's I, too bad, right? But you know, when you see the handwriting in a in a laboratory notebook entry start to get very excited and, you know, much larger and maybe he'll even switch to red and underline things and exclamation points in the margin, it makes the work exciting and interesting, partly because you begin to get a sense of the scientist as a person and you know, why it is that they care deeply about the things that they're involved in. And, um, you know, in scientific discourse, they would obviously present rather dry and um, rational arguments in their published work to try to rebut some of the things that their critics are saying about their work. And here in a private diary, you find a little bit more about, you know, how they actually feel inside about it, you know, science, science, how how uh, stuck up and ridiculous it is to think that life must always have a father and a mother. Uh, it's a really, I mean, it's an interesting thing about being a historian of science and especially about archival research. But um, there were many passages like this. I, at, because I was able to read and study carefully all the published material for several years before Reich's archives were open to scholars, by the time I went in, I knew something about um, not only how Reich found his way into these experiments about uh, bions, um, but also about uh, problems that some researchers had had trying to replicate the experiments. And um, it, it became clear to me that there might be technical details that don't always appear in the published version, but that might turn out to be, although small, important things for people who are trying to replicate the experiments. And um, one thing that was very exciting was in Reich's uh, archives to find what I refer to uh, colloquially as the bion cookbook, the (laughs) laboratory's notebook where they kept all the recipes for culture media, all the recipes for preparing different types of these bions and where Sometimes in handwritten notes at the bottom of the page, things were added that they had found out by trial and error you had to do during the experiment, but that were little minor tweaks that might not end up making their way into the published um, version. And I thought if anybody takes this story seriously and does try to replicate some of these experiments, they're going to need to know these things. So the fact that the cookbook, uh, as I referred to it, was still there and still intact and had these kind of handwritten details that sometimes do make the difference between whether somebody can replicate the experiment or not was very exciting. Um, It might be worth stopping for a minute to just say a word or two about what Reich meant when he called these bion experiments and and what he means by a bion.
0: Yes. Thank you.
1: He started um, in the physiology experiments about sexuality Uh, One of the things he asked himself after those experiments is, I wonder if the thing I'm discovering here is true about all living things, or at least, you know, more primitive living things, a lot less complicated than a human being. I wonder if, for example, this kind of movement of bioelectrical energy out to the periphery during states of um, pleasure, excitation, and withdrawal of the energy into the core of the organism does that apply to much simpler organisms, jellyfish, or maybe even amoeba? Um, and it was because he was working microscopically with amoebas and trying to find whether or not his, um, his orgasm formula, as he called it, applied to microorganisms as well as to more complex multicellular organisms. That's what eventually got him working with microscopes and, um, It was uh, trying to recreate cultures of amoebas that made him um, dissatisfied with the traditional explanation of how the amoebas got into the culture and made him start to study it in much more detail to understand, um, is that actually where they're coming from? When he asked the assistant at the uh, Botanical Institute at the University in Oslo for cultures of amoebas and how to make his own, They said, well, you just soak hay or grass in water for 10 days or two weeks. And by the end of that time, you'll find the culture full of amoebas. And he said, well, how does that happen? And they said, well, of course, the spores of amoebas fall in there from the air or perhaps are already on the dead grass when you put it in the water. And as they they swell up with water over time, soaking in the water, they sprout and grow into amoebas, and they start feeding on the you know disintegrating grass tissue. And Reich says, for reasons he wasn't really certain about, he found that hard to believe. And so he decided to just watch the grass under the microscope for a long time as it swelled up and began to disintegrate and uh, waited to see whether he could see any of these spores hatch into amoebas. Um, And, you know, since this took 10 days or two weeks, eventually he realized he would have to use time-lapse filming through the microscope because he couldn't sit there, even if he switched off with assistance uh, for several days when people needed to sleep. He couldn't sit there day after day, hour after hour for two straight weeks. Um, But it occurred to him that if he could do time-lapse filming through the microscope – it, that would certainly see if some amoeba had hatched out of some spore that wasn't at first visible mm-hmm. uh, over time. And what he saw instead was rather surprising and quite at odds with most biological theory. He saw the as the grass disintegrated and um, broke down in the water, um, It at first inside the grass you saw these tiny round vesicles form little sac like structures about the size of a bacterium, like one, two, three micrometers in diameter, and that they gradually um, themselves swelled up with fluid, and sometimes clumps of them would even form on the disintegrating edge of the grass blade. And the, these little uh, structures that were forming, he later called bions, these little vesicles uh, about the size of bacteria, were... Um, But uh, over time, he saw that a clump of these things on the edge of a disintegrating grass blade would have a membrane form around it and would eventually break off and uh, start floating around in the fluid and took on a lot of internal motility of its own. And after a few days, one of these things that had been a clump of bions on the edge of the grass blade starting to swim around in the fluid began to look indistinguishable from the amoebas that he had been given in the culture. And he thought, "Uh, this is really extraordinary. Have I stumbled onto here something that modern biology says isn't even possible that somehow from disintegrating non-living material, new living things could form. Um, And he begins to try to institute control experiments to, really exclude the possibility that what he sees swimming around in there could possibly have come from um, just uh, germs in the air getting into the solution. Uh, The time-lapse filming in the amoeba experiment makes it pretty clear that what later looks like an amoeba did not sprout from some kind of spore, but instead formed in this slow uh, stepwise process from a heap of these vesicles breaking itself free from the disintegrating grass tissue. Um, in other experiments, he tries to make bions um, synthetically. By There's a tradition of experiments at this time, um, often referred to as cell model experiments, where people put together combinations of different biochemicals that they think might be necessary ingredients to make a very simple living system <laughs> and um, see whether they can create things that have some of the characteristics <laughs> of a very simple living cell. And um, when Reich tries to make that bions this way, he finds certain combinations of chemicals will produce these kind of structures and that they have an awful lot of lifelike properties. And uh, in those uh, experiments, he he can autoclave all the materials ahead of time, mix the mixture together and then autoclave the mixture, and then only take sterile samples out of it to observe under the microscope. And, When he institutes these kind of control experiments, it's pretty clear that the moving structures that he's seeing in there are not coming from contamination from the air. He's pretty exhaustive in doing control experiments. At one point, he even heats some of the ingredients in bion mixtures, heats them up to incandescence in a Bunsen burner flame before putting them into a previously autoclaved culture medium to see whether... (laughs) <laughs> they'll produce bions and it's hard to think of a more extreme sterilizing procedure than heating up the ingredients it you know to red hot heat in a bunsen burner flame for 60 seconds or 90 seconds um it's it's hard to believe anything could still be alive in there in the way of a germ or a spore um so there's many things about the experiments that do seem really quite puzzling from the point of view of modern biology Um, And these bions, um, right, his way of understanding it was to say, I think that I've discovered that modern biology is wrong to say it's never possible for living things to come into existence from non-living material. And these bions appear to be a sort of a transitional stage between the non-living and the living because they've acquired some properties of living cells. They have electrical charge. Uh, which you can measure by seeing that they migrate in an electrical field across the microscope slide. They uh, are um, they have internal motility of their own, um, not just sort of random Brownian movement bombarding them from without, but an internal motility of their own, including an internal pulsatory movement. They can be cultured from one generation to another in pure culture media. These are all pretty clear characteristics of something that has an awful lot of lifelike properties. And um, Reich felt that maybe what bions were was a transitional stage between the living and the non-living.
0: Now um, you've mentioned his work with microscopy, right? And his work, um, on the bions being shaped by what he was actually seeing in the microscope. And this actually brings us to another really important theme here. So later on in the book, and there's so much of the book, right, that we won't have a chance to get to in detail, but there's a whole chapter on um, what are called SAPA bions. These are bions that he thought emitted radiation Um, And you talk in that discussion um, uh, of sapobions in Chapter 7 about the fact that, you know, he was seeing things and microscopists were seeing things, um, seeing phenomena that microscopists today might also see. Now, their interpretations of what was happening um, would probably be different from his interpretation of these bions emitting radiation. But nonetheless, he was basing what he was seeing on real visual evidence. Now, um, this is really important in terms of the link that it's drawing between what he was doing and what we do today. Now, if you want to get researchers excited about this topic and send them off to study Reich um, and these notebooks, it's probably enough to just mention in connection something called a Bion cookbook that's related to an orgasm formula like I'm sold, you know? I mean, that would be enough for me. Um, but another reason to really take this seriously comes up in several of the chapters. So in the Bion chapter, you talk about um, the possibilities that emerge to understand his work as part of the larger history and the more recent, for us, history of distinguishing biosignatures. That's a very much an active scientific problem today. We can think of the Martian meteorite, right? The ALH-84 001. Um, And making these links and thinking about his work as part of this larger history of debates that are still very active right now is one way of taking his science seriously. This comes up again in a chapter that looks at his work on cancer. Now he moves um, from the orgasms to bions to an interest in cancer therapy. And in chapter 5, you talk about his interest in and his work on cancer and his work developing this organ um, energy accumulator that we talked about before. That chapter also ends by connecting the past and the present and talking about how recent discussions and research on the AIDS-syphilis connection or a possible AIDS-syphilis connection offers possible new relevance for Reich's theories of endogenous infection via protozoans and T. bacilli, And for listeners who don't know what T. Basili are, don't worry, you will after you read the book. Um, So this is just something I want to ask you to talk a little bit about. Why is it important and how is it important for you um, to understand Reich's scientific work in the context of work today? How and why does understanding his work matter for um, research today? And why does that matter for how we understand him as a scientist?
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's a biologist out there who reads this book and has any interest in, you know, I suggest that it might be that, that since the evidence um, seems to indicate that these experiments did not get a fair hearing from the scientific community at the time, based on the evidence, um, that maybe they're worth investigating again um, to see whether or not they might have significance um either what Reich thought or perhaps significance in another direction. And if there's any reason why a biologist might take me up on that and think that that's worth doing, it would be because of the two things that you mentioned that these experiments led to. Um, the SAPA bion experiments, one of the very last uh, kinds of bions that Reich finds in these experiments, Made out of sand that was heated to incandescence in a Bunsen burner flame. Like by
0: mistake, right? Like one
1: of his assistants. A completely serendipitous thing. But he, so that particular type of bion was rather strikingly different from the earlier ones that he had found because um, it wasn't merely visual effects that made him think it looked like it was giving off some kind of radiation. It was also that. Um, When uh, one did microscopic work studying these bions hours a day for uh, weeks on end, he got a very severe case of conjunctivitis, irritation of the eye, and was told by an ophthalmologist that he had to wear dark glasses and lay off microscope work for several weeks in order to have it cured. And a similar symptom um, occurred in one of the other workers in the lab when they started to study the same bion cultures uh, during the time that Reich was laying off for a few days. So he began to think, you know, it might not just be like an appearance that these things are giving off radiation. There's something that's coming from these studying these cultures that's irritating the eye. He put a small sample of the bion culture on a microscope slide. um, Though he used a quartz slide rather than a glass slide. Because he had a hunch that um, there was another form of radiation being studied at the time called mitogenetic radiation that he thought might be related. And that had been shown to be in the wavelength range of ultraviolet, which um, is glass is not transparent to ultraviolet. So if you put uh, the cultures on a glass slide uh, and then place that on somebody's skin, the radiation might not penetrate the glass and have any effect on the skin. So instead, he took a quartz microscope slide, put a small sample of this on it, and held it against the skin for 10 or 15 minutes. And um, after it was removed, the spot on the skin directly underneath the bion culture had turned red like a sunburn, but not the surrounding skin. Um, And he did this on a number of different experimental subjects and found that Um, There was objectively something being radiated from these bions that had biological effects. Uh, When the bion cultures were placed on top of photographic plates that were inside containers, light-tight containers, um, the culture merely sitting on top of the plate's container would fog the plates within, um, which is another pretty uh, standard way of uh, uh, people previously detecting A radiation source from someplace they hadn't expected. So there were a number of physical measurements that made it clear that the bions were actually giving off some kind of radiation, probably in the ultraviolet wavelength range, and radiation that had a significant amount of biological activity. And um, that is the radiation that Reich later, when he came to believe after a long series of experiments, that it was not identical to any previously known form of electromagnetic radiation, that's the energy that he referred to uh, as orgone energy and considered was a new discovery since it was uh, unlike any other known form of, of uh, radiation. Um, so if one, you know, is interested and serious about replicating these experiments, I would think that SAPA experiment would be one of the most important to try to replicate because it's the test of whether or not there really is such a thing as orgone radiation and whether or not it has the kind of measurable properties that Reich reported it having. Um, And so recreating these sapobionts would be a pretty important part of that. Um, And that is not one of the experiments that very many researchers have ever tried to take seriously. Um, I mean, the vast majority of researchers would never take this up in the first place because they've already learned from the beginning that it was pseudoscience and not worth wasting their time on. But um, a few researchers who have tried to replicate the Sappaion experiments have found it very difficult. And Reich himself said that even when it happened serendipitously and he replicated it, he could only do so in like five out of eight trials. So there's some variables involved that even Reich himself did not identify at the time, but that make these experiments somewhat more difficult to replicate than some of the other bion experiments. Yet, because of the discovery of orgone energy in this very type of bion, that would be a pretty important experiment for somebody to try to replicate. And that's one of the reasons why I hope the kind of technical details in this bion cookbook might be important in uh, helping people to find out what are those small um, technical tweaks that are necessary to make the, the thing work if it didn't work when you did it in a slightly different way. I also publish a fair amount of detailed correspondence between Reich and other scientists because a lot of times in a letter directly to a scientist who's trying to replicate the experiments, they might discuss some very small experimental detail that doesn't end up finding its way into publication, but that turned out to be necessary. Uh, there's one experiment where a scientist in France Ray, Reich and Reich says, oh, you used the gelatin in that experiment just like I did. Well, did you use the red gelatin? Ah, see, you used the clear gelatin. I tried that too, but the experiment only worked when I switched it to the red gelatin. And he's not all that worried or concerned about trying to figure out why that is because he's much more interested in you know, taking the structures that are produced and finding out what characteristics they have. Um, But somebody who tries to replicate the experiment, you know, if they didn't read that letter, they might come up with totally negative results for that experiment because he doesn't ever end up mentioning that little detail about the one gelatin as opposed to the other in the published version. Um, So the second reason that you mentioned why I can imagine some biologists actually wanting to take the trouble To repeat some of these experiments, if they read the book and are persuaded that it's worth taking the trouble, is because it's also from these experiments on bions that Reich created uh, his theory about how cancer originates, and that is the theory that eventually got him into trouble with the U.S. government and got him imprisoned. Uh, The FDA thought he was claiming to have um, a cure for cancer, Um, and Reich never did claim that, but. the the, his theory about how cancer originates has everything to do with these bions. At one point, he um, has a a patient who's uh, very sick with a long-term degenerative disease and who, you know, volunteers to let Rye study samples of his blood and um, uh, try to find out if any of these bions might be in them. Because Reich is wondering out loud after first discovering these things. You know, they're in the size range of bacteria. I wonder if they might have anything to do with health and disease. He tries injecting them into healthy experimental mice to see if they cause disease symptoms. And at one point when he has the opportunity with this patient who has a long-term degenerative disease and who says, yeah, sure, take some of my blood and tell me what you find. It'd be interesting. Um, Reich sees... uh, bions produced from disintegrating tissues from a human being in a process that looks to him strikingly parallel to the process that he saw with the amoebas coming from the disintegrating grass tissue in that much earlier experiment. He sees the human tissues from somebody who's got a very serious disease and so he says these tissues are clearly from a very debilitated organism under those conditions, unlike healthy tissues, the minute I take them out and start looking at them under the microscope, I see they're already half disintegrated into bions inside the person's body. And there's lots of bions swarming all around inside them And when I take them out. And as he watches these over time, something very similar happens to what happened in the plant tissue. Some of the bions clump together, a membrane forms around them and they swim off in the solution as a free-living protozoan. But Reich notices that they look exactly like cancer cells if you look at the tissue from a live cancer patient in the living state. Um, If you stain it and fix it, it drastically changes the shape and the appearance of the cells, and they don't look like what you see in this preparation that formed from bions. But Reich has also looked at uh live tissue from cancer patients and seen what live cancer cells look like and he's struck by how similarly they look to amoebas and um how the uh the cells that are formed and swimming around inside the uh, under the microscope field from this patient of his look very very similar to cancer cells, so he formulates a hypothesis that cancer inside the body is a long-term degenerative process that's comparable to a grass blade dying and disintegrating into bions, and that cancer cells are analogous to the amoebas that are produced from disintegrating plant tissue and that um, that process might be a key to the understanding of where cancer cells originally come from. Obviously quite different from the mainstream um, biological notion that what makes cancer cells originate is some kind of a mutation in an otherwise normal body cell that makes it start to replicate out of control. But Reich thinks he sees uh, you know, the evidence uh, from living tissues right before his eyes that, in fact, there might be some different process by which cancer cells originate. And he begins to wonder, well, what is it about the debilitation of the tissues that would lead it to disintegrate into bions and then the bions to clump together to form protozoal cancer cells. So if there's anything to Reich's bion experiments, one of the reasons why somebody might want to pursue them is to find out whether Reich's theory of cancer might have any substance to it or not. If it did, it would suggest dramatically different kinds of interventions to prevent cancer than um, current cancer therapies uh, do, which focus mostly on trying to deal with a tumor after it's already formed.
0: So, Jim, if you can believe it, we are almost at the conclusion of our hour. Now there is a ton of material that the book really beautifully gets into that we don't have a chance um, to talk about. This includes much more detailed work on his theory of cancer. You talk about oppositions, to his experiments and sort of, um, kind of attacks on his work in the press. Um, and you talk about the potential financial bases of, of this opposition to his work. And so there's a lot of work that the book does to complicate and to really push back against this idea of Reich as a pseudoscientist or as a charlatan. And you're really contextualizing this socially, scientifically, politically. Historically, in all kinds of ways that listeners will find um, in uh, going gone into in great detail in the chapters. There's also a whole epilogue um, that takes precisely the kinds of issues that you were just talking about and extends it out into considering some recent experimental work that's actually related to Reich's research on bions and sort of the ways that some of these ideas are actually playing out in experimental science right now. So given all of that, and given the fact that there's, again, a ton of stuff in here um, that's awaiting the eager reader, so I hope listeners will go to the book directly um, and find that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
1: Well, if you're you're interested in scientists and how they think, and especially if you're interested in us, you know, the kinds of scientists who we, we end up calling, you know, paradigm changing scientists. Um, I, this is a really interesting story to me as a candidate for that possibility. Uh, Reich is somebody who clearly has very different ideas from the mainstream ideas in the life sciences. But I think I've shown in the book pretty convincingly that it's not because he doesn't understand the mainstream ideas in the life sciences. Um, as most people think about Reich and his laboratory work. So, you know, if you're interested in the kind of scientists who are able to cross a lot of disciplinary boundaries and move into new fields and see phenomena in an entirely new way, I think this is a Reich story and particularly his view in these experiments of things like cancer and of the origin of life are interesting candidates to consider as sort of paradigm changing science. And I talk at a great deal of length and I give a lot of rice correspondence with other scientists trying to help the reader understand what kind of a person is it that is capable of this kind of thing. Um, many scientists I suspect will read these experiments and think this guy is just arrogant. I mean, It's unbelievably arrogant to think that even if you've got a medical degree, um, you can cross from psychoanalysis into physiology and do anything meaningful in the way of new research. I mean, you really have to be a trained physiologist to do anything in physiology. Or later, you really have to be a trained microbiologist to do anything meaningful in origin of life research. And Obviously, that's not always been true about some of the scientists who we consider to be the real paradigm-changing scientists. It is precisely because they have not been hampered by traditional ossified disciplinary boundaries that sometimes people have made important new intellectual breakthroughs and re-envisioned some problem in an entirely new way. And I think one of the most interesting things that I pose for the reader is the challenge of asking yourself: and you know, what do you think this guy sounds more like? Does he sound to you more like a person who's arrogant and um, disrespectful of the importance of really being deeply rooted in a field of science, or does he sound to you like a person who just generates a lot of resentment from colleagues? because he is one of those kind of paradigm changing scientists who for whatever reason is really capable of crossing a lot of disciplinary boundaries in ways that most of them are not, or are not comfortable with at any rate. Um, and I, to me, that's one of the most interesting things to think about, about Rye. um It it's, it, it's a really interesting um, contrast between two different views of a scientist and a scientist who. Even by the people who think that most of what he did is wrong, um, they will acknowledge that an awful lot of what he did is really quite important and striking, especially his sociological research in the mass psychology of fascism. So how does somebody, you know, who's who's brilliant in a number of different fields um, pan out as a scientist in, in, in that way? I think it's a it's a whole interesting different story, um, but one that might be just as interesting to people who think about, you know, so-called paradigm changing scientists and they could ask themselves, do I think this guy really sounds like one of those? Um, Or does he just sound like somebody who's too arrogant to realize how wrong he is?
0: So speaking of change, now that the book is out very, very briefly, what are you working on now? What's currently inspiring you in your research?
1: Well, I'm thinking seriously. I wouldn't say I've made a definitive decision about this, but I, I've gotten so interested in Reich as a scientific figure, and especially how what he gets into in Oregon Energy later leads him into conflict with the U.S. government. I'm thinking about the possibility of doing a scientific biography of Reich. It would be a really long and involved project because he does wander from microbiology into physics, into meteorology, and quite a few other fields where I would really have to go back and get more background in order to evaluate the work that he does in these different fields. But that is one thing that makes it a kind of an exciting prospect, Um, you know, a story that would really lead you in many interesting directions and give you a chance to evaluate his work in many different fields. And um, one thing that a lot of biographies have been written about, Rye, including um, by some people who were personally involved at the time, students of his or ex-wives. And, you know, there's a lot that can be learned from many different biographies that have been written. But uh, there isn't yet anything like that by somebody who's a trained historian, and especially not a trained historian of science, who could really try to make some kind of an intelligent evaluation of, the validity of the different experimental work in different fields. And I think since this book has convinced me that at least this initial foray into the laboratory, um, is not pseudoscience at all, but really interesting science in some cutting edge new ways, it makes me want to know more about Reich's later science and, um, whether or not it also might have more substance to it than this widespread narrative about pseudoscience, um, would ever lead one to believe. And that makes the idea of doing a scientific biography um, appealing as well. Um, I read a really good scientific biography of Robert Oppenheimer a few years ago called American Prometheus. And it, one of the things about it that makes it so good is that um, Oppenheimer's career is sort of a window into most of 20th century physics. And it's also a window into an awful lot of political developments in the 20th century, at least in um, American history. Reich's story is very similar, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, it's a window into developments in psychoanalysis and social theory. It's certainly a window into politics and the politics of the U.S. Um, in the McCarthy era. And um, it's, it's a window into many, many things in science and in history that makes it a story that would have an inherent interest above and beyond um, Reich's own personal story. So um, a scientific biography rather than a personal biography, I think is quite appealing and uh, would be a long and involved project, but I'm, I'm feeling tempted.
0: Well, best of luck with that. I think it sounds like a great idea and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate such intelligent and and thoughtful questions.
0: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.